Okay, chapter 17 is cardiovascular emergencies. Heart disease is America's number one killer. So this is a pretty frequent type of call that we get sent on is cardiac related problems. Heart disease can lead to chest discomfort all the way up to cardiac arrest. And because of the potential consequences, EMTs treat all patients with signs and symptoms of cardiac compromise as a cardiac emergency until proven otherwise. And that's very important for us to remember. If we have a patient that's complaining of, say, a chest pain, we're going to assume it's cardiac in nature, be aggressive with the treatment, treat it like it's in cardiac in nature until proven otherwise. Again, because if it is cardiac in nature and we fail to treat it, we can have some pretty devastating effects on our patient. The medications that we treat for cardiac-related emergencies are pretty benign if given correctly, where we don't have to really worry about side effects if we give it too aggressively when the patient actually didn't need it. It's probably not going to hurt the patient. So circulatory system anatomy, physiology, pathophysiology. We have those three components of the circulatory system. We have the heart, which is the pump, the blood vessels, which are the pipes, and we have the blood itself or the fluid. Cardiac conduction system. And remember, it's what makes cardiac muscles unique is they have the ability to generate their own electrical impulses uh, and don't have to have that input from the brain. So the heart muscles can generate their own electrical impulses that stimulate the contraction of the muscle cells. Again, that heart has the property of automaticity and the heart rate, but the heart rate can be influenced by the sympathetic, parasympathetic nervous system. Again, the heart rate can act completely independently from the heart if it has to. However, if hormones are getting released or the sympathetic nervous system is getting activated, it will influence heart rate, strength of contractility, et cetera. So the cardiac conduction cycle. So we refer to these as pacemaker sites in the heart. So in a normal, healthy heart, the main pacemaker side is going to be this SA node. This is what's going to start that electrical activity in the heart and cause the heart to beat. So electrical impulse starts off here. It travels down this SA node through the atrium and into the ventricles. And again, causing that heart to beat. Your heart has backup uh, electrical um, pacemaker sites as well. We have the AV node, which is right right there. So if something's wrong with that SA node, this AV node may take over. And this is where it's stimulating the heart to beat at. You also have all these places in the ventricles as well that have the possibility if these two, if up here is messed up, the heart or the, the electrical activity can generate here in the ventricles. And again, reading EKGs, 12 lead EKGs, especially this is what we're reading is where this pacemaker site which pacemaker side is firing, and how that electrical activity is moving through this heart. <clears throat> so the heart pumps blood throughout the entire body. The left side of the heart is the side of the heart. The left ventricle is what pumps the blood to the rest of the body. That left ventricle must overcome the pressure in the aorta to eject blood. So if we're having a lot of 
pressure in that aorta, high diastolic pressure, your left ventricle is going to have to work harder to overcome that pressure. So excessive pressure in the aorta over time can lead to heart failure with pulmonary edema. So again, patients with high blood pressure, chronic hypertension, where their, their diastolic as well is extremely high. That's putting a lot of strain and wear and tear on that heart. And that can be a factor that leads to a patient getting diagnosed with heart failure. Blood flow through the heart, should know this. So blood enters the heart through the vena cava. You have the inferior, the superior vena cava. From the vena cava, the vena cava dumps directly into the right atrium. From the right atrium, it goes through the <clears throat> tricuspid valve into the right ventricle. The right ventricle then pumps through the pulmonic valve. That pulmonic valve then leads into the pulmonary arteries. And remember, pulmonary arteries are the only arteries in the body that does not carry oxygenated blood. From the pulmonary artery, now it circulates to the lungs and to the capillaries around the alveoli and picks up its oxygen. After it circles the alveoli, now it's going to move back to the heart and it's going to go through the pulmonary vein. Again, just like pulmonary artery, the pulmonary vein is the only vein in the body that does carry oxygenated blood. Pulmonary vein, now it's moving the blood into the left side of the heart. So it goes through the left atrium. Left atrium, then it goes through the mitral valve into the left ventricle. Through the left ventricle, it goes through the aortic valve into the aorta. And from the aorta, all other arteries branch off of that aorta. So from the aorta, it goes to the rest of the body. And again, you, can't, you, you definitely need to know this. Did I tell you the little acronym I used to remember the cardiac valves in order? So we have tricuspid, pulmonic, mitral, and aortic, toilet, paper, my, ass. That's the acronym that a lot of people use to remember the order of the heart valves. So this also helps us make sense that depending on when we talk about heart failure coming up, if we have left-sided heart failure, the left side of the heart, blood is starting to back up behind the left side of the heart. Well, where does it go before it comes to the left side of the heart? It goes into the lungs. So if I'm having left-sided failure, blood's backing up and it's going to back up into my lungs. I have pulmonary edema. If I have right-sided heart failure, my, the right side of my heart can't keep up with the demand. Blood's going to start backing up before the right side of the heart. Well, where does it come in? Where does it go or come from before it goes into the right side of the heart? The rest of the body. So we're going to see peripheral edema, swelling to the feet and ankles mainly for right-sided heart failure or JVD if it's severe enough as well. So again, knowing the anatomy, how blood circulates can help you. I mean, it makes sense of why we see some of the signs and symptoms that we do for different side, side heart failure. And again, this is just an illustration showing uh, that how blood circulates through the body. And again, kind of just showing the same thing, right side of the heart, the body, blood comes from the uh, vena cava, right side of the heart, into the lungs, then into the left side of the heart, 
through the aorta to the rest of the body. We have the vessels. Those comprise of arteries. Getting smaller, they turn into arterioles, which is the smallest of the arteries. Those arterioles then lead into the capillaries, where gas exchange occurs, and again, where it moves from the arterial system into the venous system. The smallest of the veins are the venules. Those venules then lead into veins and then eventually back into the heart. Major arteries of the body, we've already kind of talked about this. Main ones that we focus on are the carotids, the radials, the brachials. You have your femorals right here as well, and those pedal pulses down here as well. As you can see, how large that aorta is, that aortic arch is right here. Top of that arch kind of feeds the upper extremities in the brain. As it drops down, you can see how large that aorta is that runs right through that abdominal cavity. Major veins, you can note, looking at it, the veins run very similar to that of the arteries. You can, again, see how large the inferior vena cava is right here. Here is the superior vena cava. Vessels of the heart. The heart muscle is perfused by the coronary arteries. Again, the blood has its own blood supply. The coronary arteries are what feeds the heart muscle its needed blood supply. And it's an occlusion of the coronary artery deprives the heart muscle of oxygen. And if it's severe enough, that's when we start getting heart attacks. It's from an occlusion of the coronary artery. And a heart attack, heart failure, and abnormal cardiac rhythms may occur if we deprive that heart muscle of its needed oxygen. Again, you can see those coronary arteries. You have the right coronary artery, the left coronary artery. We have the anterior descending branch of the left coronary artery, et cetera. And again, I think I mentioned this before. We can, on a 12 EDKG, we can look and determine which part of the heart is not receiving oxygen and kind of work our way backwards from our 12 lead and determine roughly, at bare, bare minimum, which one of these coronary arteries is blocked based on which part of the heart muscle is affected and is dead. Blood, we have platelets <clears throat> that help with clotting. In this case though, many times platelets can actually be harmful to the patient. Those platelets play a role in cardiac emergency through their role in blood clotting. We'll talk about why clotting in this case is gonna be bad for our patients. Platelets, thrombin and fibrin, Again, are those components of clots. And a thrombus may form at the side of a of plaque and a coronary artery depriving part of the heart muscle, blood, and oxygen. Again, we're going to talk about that coming up. <clears throat> so the process of artery occlusion or atherosclerosis. So this is what typically or something similar, this is what's going on during a heart attack. So initially, we have our coronary arteries right here, and something happened causing damage to the anterior portion of that coronary artery. This can be from smoking, diabetes, chronic high blood pressure, high cholesterol. A whole number of things increases the likelihood or the risk of coronary artery disease. 
So we have some damage and now we're getting plaque starting to, uh, to form. Fatty streaks begin to form the damaged vessel walls. So we see it's just getting larger and larger. <clears throat> and fibrous plaque begins to form here as well. So now this artery is starting to occlude because of the, the clotting or these plaque and so forth. And you can see the differences in the size of the opening. So we're already having a limited amount of blood, oxygenated blood, to get to the heart. Well, what can happen is this plaque deposits begin to ulcerate and rupture. It just gets so big that the end of it starts kind of breaking off and rupturing. Well, now it's going to start bleeding. Well, your blood is naturally going to try to stop bleeding as it occurs. So platelets are going to get dispatched to the area to try to stop that bleeding, forming a clot. Well, that clot now is almost completely occluded that coronary artery. So very, very little blood is able to get back. So again, this is typically a very good example of what happens during to those coronary arteries during a heart attack. Blood pressure, systolic blood pressure is measured during contraction of that heart. Systolic is the top number, the larger of the two. Diastolic is the blood pressure is measured during relaxation of the heart or diastole. And the degree of resistance of blood vessels are going to affect the blood pressure. We've already talked about that. Blood vessels are dilated. Blood pressure is going to drop. Blood vessels constrict. Blood pressure is going to increase. Inadequate circulation results in hypoperfusion or shock. During poor circulation, that deprives the cells of oxygen, nutrients, and waste removal. And again, there's many things that can cause shock, including hypovolemia, heart failure, or vasodilation. Again, that should have all been a review. Okay, moving into actual cardiac emergencies. We can have cardiac compromise and acute coronary syndrome. Acute coronary syndrome is abbreviated ACS. So collectively, cardiac conditions are referred to as cardiac compromise. Kind of regardless of what the cause is, if it's a cardiac-related issue, we just refer to it as cardiac compromise. ACS, acute coronary syndrome, is a group of signs and symptoms resulting from any of a variety of conditions that can affect the heart in which the coronary arteries are narrowed or occluded by fat deposits, clots, or spasms. So if there's a problem with a coronary artery that's reducing the amount of blood flow to the heart, causing signs and symptoms, it's collectively referred to as ACS. Cardiac-related emergencies are a significant problem. About 600,000 Americans die every year due to cardiac-related emergencies. And us as EMS workers do play a role in reducing the death associated with heart attacks. Some of the treatment that we provide as soon as we get on scene can make a difference in patient outcomes. So time is going to be critical. Early recognition is the key to effective treatment. Recognizing, hey, this is possibly a heart attack we're going to immediately start treatment, not only starting treatment, 
but also getting them to the appropriate facility is going to be important as well. Rapid transport. With a truly suspected MI, we will go locked in sirens to the hospital. And again, the sooner the patient receives treatment, the better the prognosis is going to be. And if y'all haven't noticed it by yet, I have a very hard time sitting still and getting comfortable for your, these long six, seven hour days. So arterial sclerosis and atherosclerosis. So arterial sclerosis is a condition that causes the smallest of the arterial structures to become stiff and less elastic. Atherosclerosis is a form of arterial sclerosis that results in the buildup of plaque in the arteries. And the inflammatory process may eventually lead to the development of a clot, an occlusion, or an occlusion of the vessel. Again, that's what likely is going to cause that heart attack. Atherosclerosis of the coronary artery vessels is called CAD, coronary artery disease. And that is a big predisposing factor for a heart attack is if the patient has a history of coronary artery disease, very high risk of having a heart attack. So again, time is going to be critical. We have to ensure that we are transporting the patient to the most appropriate facility if they're having a heart attack. What does the patient need if they're having a heart attack? What's the treatment that the hospital is going to provide? Does anybody know? They need an angiogram and an angio, probably an angioplasty. So they need a cath lab. That's where they're going with an MI. They're going to the cath lab. So if we have a patient that we do suspect of having a heart attack, we have to ensure that we go to the hosp a hospital that has a cath lab. Here in Lubbock, all the major hospitals have cath labs. If you, as long as you don't transport them to a freestanding, you're going to be okay. UMC, Covenant, obviously the heart hospital is going to have a cath lab as well. So this is an actual angiogram from a patient with a blocked uh, coronary artery. So we can see here, here's that coronary artery on the patient. We look right here and, and look how much occlusion there is. So very little amounts of blood was able to get past that blockage. You can also note right here, body's going to try to save itself. Body's realizing, hey, we're not getting enough blood. Here's this obstruction. We're going to make these, I can't remember what they call them off the top of my head. We'll talk about them coming up. <clears throat> These kind of like these little feeder arteries that are bypassing that clot, doing anything it can to ensuring that that uh, artery is getting some blood, the rest of this heart muscle is getting some blood. So again, this patient was either actively having a heart attack. In this case, the patient was this close to having a heart attack. She was having chest pain, but didn't have any permanent damage to her heart. So took her to the hospital. They went in the cath lab. They said, yep, there's the obstruction. We need to fix the obstruction. So they put a catheter in there. That's, that's catheters kind of a stent. That is the kind of the layperson term for an angioplasty. Come in here, we put that stent in there, and now we notice it's getting good blood flow. Can also note that that little feeder artery right there, no longer needed, is gone. It kind of shunning blood away from it. It's no longer being used. <clears throat> So acute coronary syndrome, there are three conditions 
are two conditions that really comprise of acute coronary syndrome, ACS, that is unstable angina and a myocardial infarction. I'm going to tell you right off the bat, both of these conditions present very similarly. Heart attack is worst case scenario. It's hard for us to differentiate the difference. So we're going to treat them as if they're having a heart attack. And I'll talk about the main difference between the two. So narrowed arteries lead to myocardial ischemia. So we're talking about lack of oxygenated blood flow reaching that portion of the heart. So it's not getting good oxygenated blood flow. We refer to that part as being ischemic. The typical response to myocardial ischemia, we start depriving that heart muscle of oxygen. Well, what's it going to do to the patient? It's going to say, hey, something's wrong. It's going to start having pain in their chest. So chest discomfort is caused from the ischemia to the heart. And again, for ACS, coronary artery disease is a primary risk factor for it. So we're going to kind of break these down. So we talked about unstable angina as being a part of ACS. There's another type of angina known as stable angina. But to, collectively, those two conditions are referred to as angina pectoris, which literally means pain in the chest. So patient is having chest pain that's caused from a reduced oxygen delivery to the myocardium as a result of coronary artery disease. Again, not enough blood is circulating to meet the oxygen demand of the heart muscle. And again, oftentimes that's going to result in a complaint of chest pain, chest tightness, chest discomfort. With angina, it normally occurs during physical or emotional stress. Patient gets extremely upset, starts having chest pain. So mowing the yard, exerting themselves, starts having chest pain. And this sentence right here is going to be the big difference between angina and a heart attack generally relieved with rest and nitro and the capital, there is no residual, residual damage to the myocardium. So angina does not permanently, permanently damage the heart muscle. It's not the case for a heart attack that is causing permanent damage to the heart muscle. And that's the big difference right there. Angina does not permanently injure the heart. So again, we have coronary artery disease, we have plaque formation, narrowing down those passageways so not enough blood is able to get past that blockage. So not enough blood's getting by, this part of the heart is getting ischemic, and that's going to start causing the patient to have chest pain. Signs and symptoms of angina. Substernal chest pain. This pain may radiate to the shoulders. Typically, the left, we can do the right, arms, the neck, the jaw, the upper back, or even the upper abdomen, typically in that epigastric region right kind of below the sternum. Certain patients, they may not have that chest pain or chest discomfort. They may just have the pain in the area of radiation. They may only be complaining of neck pain or jaw pain or shoulder pain, et cetera, and not have any chest discomfort. With angina, the pain seldomly lasts for more than 10 to 15 minutes. 
So again, it's transient, doesn't last very long. And with angina, even a heart attack as well, patient can also present or complain of shortness of breath as well. And with angina, the pain is typically associated with the three E's that can bring on that pain, exercise, heavy meals, even eating, and emotional situations can cause that pain in the chest to start to occur. Again, transient normally doesn't last very long, and that pain will typically go away if the patient rests, stops whatever physical activity they're doing, calms themselves down, and takes their prescribed nitro. Women, diabetics, and the elderly may not have a typ typical presentation of angina. They're notorious for having what we refer to as atypical presentations or abnormal presentations. They may not have that chest pain. They may just have that pain in the area of radiation. Their only complaint may just be of generalized weakness, even though they're having a massive heart attack or it's angina. So that's just something that we need to keep in the back of our minds that elderly patients, female patients, and diabetic patients are more prone to having the atypical presentation, not the textbook signs and symptoms that we're gonna talk about. So again, talking about angina, we break angina down into two different forms. We have stable versus unstable. So if a patient has stable angina, the pain and the duration is predictable and relieved by predictable amounts of rest and nitro. So by that kind of definition, both of them actually, patients are going to have a pre-diagnosed uh, pre condition of angina. So this patient has angina. Uh, normal circumstances, he's, he starts mowing the yard, he starts having chest pain. He says when he, when he starts having the chest pain, he stops mowing the yard, goes inside, rests for five minutes, takes two nitro, and the pain goes away. So that's his typical pattern, right? Today, the exact same thing happened. Old man started mowing his yard, started having chest pain. Went, laid down, or sat down, rested for five minutes, took two nitro, and the pain went away. So it's following its same pattern that it does every time he mows the yard or starts having the chest pain. So again, it's predictable. Predict we, he knew he was probably going to have chest pain mowing the yard. He knew rest, two nitro was going to relieve that pain. So in that case, it's following that predictable pattern. So we refer to that as stable angina. Unstable angina, on the other hand, is when angina discomfort is prolonged or worsening and occurs without exertion. Same scenario. And no, he normally goes away with rest, five minutes rest, and two nitro. Today, it required 10 minutes of rest, and it took three nitros before that pain went away. There was a change in the pattern. So because there's a change in the pattern, that is now classified as unstable angina. Or let's say same situation, same patient, but instead of mowing the yard as being the onset, he was just laying in bed watching TV and all of a sudden started having chest pain. So it was brought on not by exertion. Again, it's a change in the pattern. So we classify that as unstable angina. Everybody with me? Makes sense? We do not normally get called for patients with what we would consider stable angina. 
he already been diagnosed with this. He knows what's going to happen. He knows what he needs to do. So very rarely are we getting called to patients suffering from stable angina. We normally get sent, pat, sent to either unstable angina or a heart attack. And again, us realistically in the field, we're not going to be able to tell the difference. So we treat them all as if they're having a heart attack. So our care treatment for angina, it's the exact same treatment that we're going to provide for a heart attack as well. Primary assessment, ABCs, make sure the airway, breathing, circulation is good. Supplemental oxygen, two to four liters per minute by cannula to keep and maintain O2 sets at or above 94%. And cardiac-related emergencies are one of those conditions where we do not, definitely do not want the O2 sets at 100. So 94 to 99% is going to be our goal for O2. We can administer nitroglycerin to the patient if their blood pressure is above 90 systolic. Again, nitroglycerin, we'll talk more about it, is a vasodilator. It's going to dilate blood vessels, which is going to drop blood pressure. So we have to ensure they have a decent blood pressure before we give them nitro. And if protocols allow, we're going to administer 160 to 325 milligrams of aspirin. Most protocols, it's 325 milligrams of aspirin. We actually want to give aspirin before we give nitro. The aspirin tends to take a little longer to work. We don't even have to get full set of vital signs before we give aspirin, so we can give it faster. The sooner we can get aspirin on, the longer we're giving it an opportunity to work. So UMCMS, they have to, if the patient's complaining of chest pain and they're going to treat it as chest pain, they have to get aspirin on board the patient within three minutes of arrival on scene. Again, vital signs aren't needed. Ask what's going on, determine, hey, this is probably chest pain, we're going to treat it. Ask about allergies, medical history, give your aspirin. After we give the aspirin, now we can go back, assess vital signs, make sure their blood pressure is okay, and then move forward with our nitro. But again, the typical dose of aspirin, 325 milligrams. The dosage of nitro, 0 0.4 milligrams. So again, the other condition that makes up ACS is going to be an acute myocardial infarction, abbreviated AMI, maybe just abbreviated MI, layman's terms, it's a heart attack. Infarction refers to death of tissue. So myocardial infarction means death of the heart muscle. It's death of the myocardium due to the inability uh, of diseased coronary arteries to allow adequate perfusion. Again, there's a blockage in the coronary artery and a part of the heart muscle is not receiving oxygenated blood. And again, typically occurs when plaque ruptures and a thrombus forms from the platelet sticking together. Within 20 to 30 minutes of inadequate perfusion, heart muscles begin to die. And once those heart muscles begin to die and die, we cannot regenerate them. Ischemia, again, lack of oxygenated blood flow reaching that portion of the heart, may lead to dysrhythmias, sudden cardiac arrest. Again, a dysrhythmia is an irregular heartbeat and the major cause of cardiac arrest. So even though the heart muscle is not completely dead because it hasn't been long enough for that lack of oxygen, if we start depriving heart muscle of oxygen, it may malfunction and cause the heart to completely stop beating. So again, this is things we need to be aware of when we're dealing with chest pain or we suspect 
a heart attack. And again, acute myocardial infarctions will have permanent damage to the heart. That is the main difference between angina and an MI. Angina does not lead to permanent damage, heart attack does. Treatments are available to restore myocardial perfusion. Success of treatment, again, is time is, is dependent, is time dependent. And there's saying that time is muscle. Again, we recognize or truly suspect a heart attack. We need to get them to a cath lab as soon as possible. The hospitals, they actually, they have metrics that they have to meet as well. From the time we walk through the door to the time they're in the cath lab inserting that stent, there's markers that they have to try to achieve and limit that amount of time as well. And again, just like with angina, diabetics, elderlies, women may complain of, may have an atypical presentation. So they may complain of shortness of breath only, nausea only, lightheadedness, or even just weakness in some situations as well. UMCMS and EMS in general, UMCMS, just one I have experience with that's just very good with it. They have elderly patients, especially elderly females with very vague complaints. Their paramedics are expected to run 12 leads on them just to rule out the possibility of major MI going on right now. Again, because they are notorious for having atypical presentations. Sun symptoms of an MI. And again, these are going to be very similar to that of. Angina, chest discomfort may radiate to the jaw, arms, shoulder, back. Anxiety, and it can lead to shortness of breath in the patient as well. The sense of impending doom. They feel like they are about to die. Anybody ever has that sense of impending doom? We always treat that seriously until we prove otherwise. Uh, you'll note, though, there are some dramatic patients out in the world, a stump toe, they have the sense of impending doom, especially for things like chest pain, shortness of breath. If they have that sense of impending doom, always, uh, again, uh, treat that seriously until we do a further assessment. Diaphoretic skin, heavy sweating. Pale skin can lead to nausea and vomiting in the patients. And nausea and vomiting in a heart attack is very common. Lightheadedness, dizziness, weakness. And again, diabetics, elderly, are more prone, females are more prone to have an atypical presentation. May only complain of shortness of breath, weakness, nausea, only jaw pain, neck pain, back pain, shoulder pain, weakness, whatever the case may be. Very important thing to note. You cannot diagnose or rule out a heart attack based solely on bottle signs. Changes in pulse rate, blood pressure, or respirations do not indicate an MI or do not rule out an MI. You can have a patient having a massive MI, and at the time, their bottle signs are absolutely normal. In order to truly rule out a heart attack, there's two things that you need to 100% rule out a heart attack. One of those is the 12 lead EKG. And the other one is going to be lab values, lab work, cardiac markers. So pre-hospital setting, we can run 12 leads on patients, but we can't roll out, totally roll out a MI because we don't run cardiac labs in the pre-hospital setting. So yeah, paramedics can do a very good job 
So there's two types of MIs, classifications of MIs. We have STEMIs and non-STEMIs. STEMIs are ST-elevated MIs, meaning those are the ones that can be seen on a 12-lead EKG. Vast majority of heart attacks can be seen on a 12-lead EKG. Smaller number won't be seen on a 12-lead and have to be ruled out by lab work. So us as paramedics with the 12-lead capabilities, I can 100% say, yeah, this patient is for sure having a heart attack in a lot of the cases. But again, at the same time, I cannot 100% rule out the patient's having a heart attack with an absolutely normal looking 12 lead. So if they're having chest pain, they need to go to the hospital to be evaluated. <clears throat> and again, because this could be a very serious condition, we treat all chest pain as it's a heart attack. We're going to treat it very aggressively, aspirin, nitro, et cetera. So we treat all chest pain as a heart attack until we can prove that it's not by any other way. So again, just saying be aggressive on your treatment. Even if you don't 100% think it's a heart attack, chest pain, not 100% sure, treat it like a heart attack. Again, we're not going to harm a patient in most cases by doing that. So again, we'll see some of those signs and symptoms are going to be very similar between angina and myocardial infarction. Substernal chest pain across the chest, saying Neck, jaw, arms, back, shoulders, radiation, often is the same. Nature of discomfort, dull, heaviness, discomfort, pressure, or squeezing sensation for angina, basically the same for a heart attack, but maybe worse. Duration, big difference here is that angina hopefully is going to self-relieve with rest and nitro on its own two to 15 minutes. MIs tend to last a lot longer until the obstructions relieve. Other symptoms, typically angina just presents with chest pain, maybe some slight trouble breathing. With myocardial infarction, they can have uh, sweating, cyanosis, weakness, dizziness, lightheadedness. Again, the three E's for angina, there may not be any for myocardial infarction. Factors giving relief with angina, again, rest, nitro for an MI. Nitro can help with chest pain, but oftentimes it's not going to completely get rid of the pain like it typically does with angina. And again, pre-hospital setting, we have no way of determining the difference or not, especially at the basic level where we can't run 12 leads. So we don't care if it's angina or if it's an MI, we're going to treat it like it's an MI. Again, you need to know the difference between angina and a heart attack, which one causes permanent damage? That's like the fifth time I said that. Why well, I say it so much, it's going to be on your next exam. So our emergency care for a heart attack. Again, very similar, same as angina. Should make sure we know where AED is, make sure it's ready to go in case the patient does code. But again, we do not attach the pads on the patient until they're actually in cardiac arrest. Primary assessment, ABCs. Again, supplemental oxygen, if indicated to do so. Be very cautious, though. We want the O2 sats between 94 and 99, but we do not want it at 100. So, again, nasal cannula, two liters, and then going up from there, adjusting is what we tend to start with with MIs. And if their sats are already 94% on room air, don't put them on oxygen. Keep them on room air. Call and reassure the patient. We do not want the patient to exert themselves. So walking, going up or downstairs, et cetera, that's making that heart work harder. 
heart muscles already damaged and weakened, we can put them into cardiac arrest by letting them exert themselves. So don't let them walk. Get the stretcher as close as we can. Just have them stand and pivot, sit down. Again, we don't want them to walk or exert. We're going to give nitro sublingually. Again, sublingually is up under the tongue. Dosage of nitro is 0.4 milligrams. And again, SL is the abbreviation for sublingual. And we're going to give aspirin. Again, typically we want to give the aspirin first. So aspirin, 160 to 325 milligrams of aspirin orally, which abbreviated PO. Again, in this region, pretty much any area I've ever worked or seen protocols, the dosage is actually 325. If we carry baby aspirin, the chewable aspirin, they're 81 milligrams. The dosage is technically 324. We just give four baby aspirin. If we suspect chest pain or heart attack, we need to let the receiving facility know early. If it is a heart attack, they have to get dispatched or page out their cath lab team, get the cath lab team there and the cath lab ready to go. So the earlier we notify the hospital, the shorter amount of time it's gonna take them to get things ready once we get there. And if we suspect we need to contact ALS backup for sure. Anytime we're dealing with chest pain, we also wanna double check for pedal edema as well, which may indicate heart failure. So pedal edema, swelling of the feet and ankles. Again, any suspected cardiac problem, always look at their feet or ankles for swelling. We also would have definitely listened to lung sounds as well, which may indicate left-sided heart failure with blood's backing up into the lungs. Listen for those pulmonary edema, the crackles, the rails, wet-sounding lung sounds. Again, rapid transport is often going to be indicated if we do suspect an MI. We do need to be cautious using lots and sirens. Uh, again, kind of weighing the risk versus reward. Lots and sirens, that's going to increase patient anxiety, which is going to increase heart rate, which is increasing the workload, oxygen demand of the heart, and so forth and so on. So follow your protocols, uh, but just be aware that, that increasing that anxiety can cause the condition to worsen a little bit. And monitor vital signs frequently as well. Aortic aneurysms. You know what? Probably good spot. Another cardiac related <clears throat> sorry, issue is a aortic aneurysm. An aortic aneurysm occurs when a weakened area of the aortic wall dilates and then balloons due to the amount of pressure that's in that aorta. And this normally results from arthrosclerosis. The problem with an aortic aneurysm is that portion where that aneurysm at, that uh, aortic wall is extremely weak. And if that aortic wall ruptures, now the patient can bleed to death extremely quickly. And oftentimes where we see these aortic aneurysms at is when it, as, as that aorta runs through the abdomen, so it's in the abdominal region. So a abdominal aortic aneurysm or a AAA is the most common place we see them. So this is what that aneurysm looks like. So here is your aorta, and this is what the aorta normally should look like. This part right here is weakened, and now it starts ballooning outward. And again, the problem is that when that ruptures, 
Patient's going to bleed to death quick, quick. So signs and symptoms of a triple A. Back pain, patient may be complaining of back pain. The telltale sign, if we see or feel this, all it can be is a triple A, is when we're palpating that abdomen, we feel a pulsating mass. And rapid deterioration, development of shock if rupture occurs. Can also have what's known as an aortic dissection occurs when there is a tear in the inner lining of the aorta and blood enters the opening and causes separation of the layers of the aortic wall. And a dissection normally occurs actually in the thoracic region. So a aneurysm, a aortic aneurysm occurs in the abdominal region and aortic dissection typically occurs in the thoracic region. And here you can see that aortic dissection. We have a rupture damage to the inner layer of the aorta. Blood is able to get underneath that layer, in between the layers. As it continues to put blood in there, these layers are going to start separating out. Signs symptoms of aortic dissection, pain that is severe, sharp, often described as a tearing type of pain in the chest or the back flank or arm. And because of that dissection, blood's able to kind of kind of divert itself. You may actually get abnormal vital signs in the patient where we on, take blood pressures on both extremities and we get a difference of more than 20 millimeters of mercury of the systolic pressure on one arm versus the other arm. And it can be either a dissection or an aneurysm. Treatment for both of these, there's nothing we're going to be able to do. They need surgical intervention pretty quickly. So it's going to be supportive measures, rapid transport to the hospital. Make sure that we are transporting these to a facility that's able to manage them. And again, in Lubbock, all three hospitals should be able to manage them. During our assessment, if we do note and feel that pulsating mass in the abdomen, we're going to go ahead and apply supplemental O2 just in case it does rupture. And again, if we note that pulsating mass, immediately stop pressing on, on the abdomen and don't palpate it again. If the patient is complaining of chest pain, chest pain and we do suspect an abdominal aortic aneurysm, we can still treat it with nitro. As long as that blood pressure is above 90, still, it's still okay to go ahead and give them nitro. However, we do not want to give them aspirin. Again, aspirin is going to, is a platelet function inhibitor, prevents clotting from occurring. <clears throat> we don't want to give them anything that's going to reduce the, uh, the blood's ability to clot. So if we suspect a AAA, definitely no aspirin. So acute coronary syndrome in females. In females, it often occurs at older age than it does in males. But, they, but females have twice the likelihood of death. And those classical textbook uh, signs and symptoms, dull substernal chest pain or discomfort, respiratory distress, nausea, vomiting, and diarrhea, or sorry, nausea, vomiting, diaphoresis, they may present with them, but they are also at a higher likelihood of presenting with non-classical or atypical findings as well. So their only complaint may be 
neck pain or neck aches. Pressure, not necessarily pain, just an uncomfortable pressure in the chest. Pain in the back, in the breast, the upper abdomen. Only complaint may be just a tingling sensation in their fingers. Unexplained fatigue or weight gain, and that weight gain is due to water weight or the edema that's starting to occur. Or their only complaint may, may be they haven't been able to sleep very well the last few days. So if the symptoms are so similar, right, between like just a heart attack or you know, an aorta like dissect, uh, right? How do you how do you differentiate fit? Sorry, how do you differentiate it if you can't give aspirin for one, but you should for the other? You know, like if the symptoms are so close. So, and the, the big deal with the, the aspirin. So, triple A is not extremely common. You're a lot more likely to run on a patient with chest pain that's not having a triple A. So, the big deal is: does the patient have a history of a triple A? Have they been diagnosed with one before? Or do we feel that pulsating mass in their stomach? And if that if we don't feel that pulsating mass, they have no previous history, we're assuming it's just heart-related, not a triple A. So go ahead and give okay. me a Again, we have to be cautious giving chest pain patients oxygen. So too much oxygen can increase cell damage in certain situations. So that's something we need to be cautious of. The return of oxygen to ischemic tissue increases free radical production, which can damage cell membranes. So again, heart attacks and strokes, that free radical production is something that we're really concerned about. And again, an increase in oxygen above normal levels actually causes coronary arteries to constrict. Again, that is the exact opposite of what we want to occur. It's the exact opposite reason why we give nitro. We want blood or those blood vessels to dilate. So constricting of the coronary arteries reduces or decreases blood flow to the ischemic areas. So again, we have to be cautious giving chest pain patients oxygen. So again, our goals, we're going to give, we're not going to withhold oxygen if the patient needs it. So again, we're going to fall back to O2 sat readings. We want the O2 sats at or above 94. So again, if they're already sat in 94% with chest pain, don't put them on oxygen. They don't need it. They're in the normal range. Normally begin, if we do have to put them on O2, we begin with a nasal cannula at two liters per minute. We can increase that, titrate it, turn it up if we need to, to try to get those O2 sets at or above 94%, but not at 100%. So 94 to 99% is the goal for oxygen with suspected acute coronary syndrome or chest pain patients. We'll continually monitor the patient and the pulse oximeter. We may have to play with that oxygen to ensure that we're not getting it all the way up to 100%. Okay, moving on to heart failure. Heart failure occurs when the ventricles can't adequately eject blood. So a portion of the heart, the ventricles, either left, right, or both, are weakened and are not keeping up with that demand. They can't pump blood out fast enough. It's coming into that ventricle faster than they can get rid of. So again, heart can't pump blood out as fast as it's coming in. Things that can cause heart failure, an acute MI, 
It may be new onset. Patient just had a heart attack. Now they're also having heart failure because of the weakened heart muscle. Heart valve problems, prolonged acute or chronic hypertension, pulmonary embolisms, cardiac rhythm disturbances. Some drugs can cause heart failure in your patients as well. And again, it's dealing with the ventricles. You can have the left ventricle or the right ventricle, left or right-sided heart failure, or you can have a combination of both left and right. So left-sided failure. And again, when we think about left-sided failure, we want to think about where does that blood enter the left side of the heart from? It goes to the lungs right before it gets to the left side of the heart. So if we're having left-sided failure, that blood's going to start backing up into the lungs. The left ventricle failure reduces blood flow and perfusion throughout the body. So blood backs up behind the left atrium, increasing pressure in the pulmonary veins. That increase in pressure is going to cause that fluid to leak out of those pulmonary capillaries, resulting in pulmonary edema, crackles, rails, which is wet sounding lung sounds, which is also going to reduce and impair gas exchange as well. A common cause of left-sided heart failure is left ventricular hypertrophy, which is this thickening of the heart muscle. So in this case, we have normal size of the heart muscle. In this case, left ventricular hypertrophy. Again, it's just causing blood to back up into the left ventricles. You can see this on a 12-lead EKG as well. Number one cause of left ventricular or a cause of left ventricular hypertrophy is things like high blood pressure. So right-sided failure. And remember, the, the blood is coming from the rest of the body to the right side of the heart. So if the right side of the heart is failing, blood's going to back up in the peripheral areas. Right side of the heart fails, blood backs up into the venous system often caused by failure of the left ventricle or COPD. So the number one cause of right-sided heart failure is left-sided heart failure. So again, these may not be completely isolated, and oftentimes they're not. They have left and right-sided heart failure going on at the same time. And again, since it's right-sided failure, it's backing up in the venous system, the peripheral area. So we're going to see things like fetal edema. Feet or ankles typically is the most common spot we're going to see it. You can also say JVD, jugular vein distension, those neck veins, bulging, and even liver engorgement as well. Liver's large. So systolic blood pressure, if it's just right-sided heart failure, we, the blood pressure may be absolutely normal or it may be just a little lower than normal. If it's pure left-sided heart failure, it's going to be normal to even high, and that's very common with patients having congestive heart failure, having a hard time breathing, check their blood pressure, the blood pressures are generally high. Breath sounds with pure right-sided failure, it's not backing up in the lungs, so lung sounds are gonna sound fine and clear. For left-sided failure, it is backing up into the lungs, so we are gonna hear crackles and rails. <clears throat> peripheral edema, again, pure right-sided heart failure, we're not gonna see peripheral edema. Uh, sorry, pure left-sided failure, we won't see peripheral edema. If it's pure right-sided failure, we will have JVD and peripheral edema. Again, the problem is oftentimes they're both. We have left and right-sided heart failure, so we'll have a combination of both. 
and we'll have crackles and rails and JVD and peripheral edema. So congestive heart failure. Congestive heart failure abbreviated to CHF is a condition which there is a buildup of fluid or congestion in the body resulting from the pump failure of the heart. Again, we're just kind of talking about heart failure. It's either the left ventricle, the right ventricle, or both ventricles are failing to meet the body's need. More blood is coming in than it can pump out. And with congestive heart failure, this is a chronic condition and results in uh, if overloading of fluids. So congestive heart failure, again, that is chronic. The heart failure we were talking about earlier, that may not be chronic. It, can, it may be able to be repaired. If it's caused by a heart attack, we restore perfusion of the heart. Uh, we may be able to kind of correct some of that heart, uh, heart failure. The signs and symptoms of CHF, shortness of breath, especially upon exertion, tachycardia, fast heart rate. Another common complaint with CHF is orthopnea, where the patient has a harder time breathing while they're laying down. So for transport, don't lay the patient down. They're going to want to sit upright. They can also have paroxysmal nocturnal dyspnea which is sudden dyspnea, waking up in the middle of the night. So they're laying down, going to bed, wake up in the middle of the night, having a hard time breathing. Not only do they get short of breath upon exertion, but they can also get very fatigued upon exertion. And having trouble breathing, they start getting anxious as well. Again, depending on left-sided failure versus right-sided failure, you may get edema to the hands, feet, and ankles if the right side of the heart is involved. If the left side of the heart is involved, we're going to get crackles and rails. And the vast majority of the time when we get dispatched to a patient with congestive heart failure, it's because they're having a hard time breathing. So they're going to, it's going to be left-sided failure. We're going to get crackles, rails when we listen to lung sounds. And that's, again, that's another way we can determine well, what's causing that patient's respiratory distress. We listen to lung sounds and notice that coarse crackles and rails or heavy crackles and rails. Well, it's probably gonna be congestive heart failure. But right now, there's if you hear crackles or rails, one of the first things we need to think about is, is this heart failure or congestive heart failure in the patient? Decrease SVO2 sat ratings, we're getting poor gas exchange. Blood pressure may be normal, low, or high. Again, if they're having a hard time breathing because of congestive heart failure, oftentimes the blood pressure is going to be elevated. And JVD, but JVD is a late sign. That means it's extremely bad if we're getting jugular vein distension. So again, signs and symptoms, just an illustration form. Again, we start depriving that brain of oxygen. They can get confusion, disorientation. We may see cyanosis, tachypnea, rapid breathing. They may actually start coughing up pink sputum from that fluid that's backing up. Low normal or high blood pressures, rapid heart rate, desire to sit upright, distended neck veins, again, very late sign, crackles or rails when we listen to lung sounds, shortness of breath, pale, cold, clammy skin, may have abdominal distension, especially over the uh, liver, 
and pedal or lower extremity edema swelling in the feet and ankles as well. Again, that's oftentimes where that edema is going to occur at is in the feet and ankles. So any type of heart-related issue, even most respiratory issues, it's always a good idea to go ahead and look at the feet or ankles. If you hear wet lung sounds, definitely look at the feet and ankles. Again, there's the same picture of JVD that we've previously seen as well. So if we have a patient with suspected heart failure, our treatment for that, it says it's going to be similar to a heart attack. If they're not having chest pain, we're not giving aspirin or nitro. Though. It's mainly going to be supported with oxygenation. We do want to have the patient sitting in a position of comfort, head elevated, or sitting upright. If the patient's not breathing adequately on their own, we're going to ventilate them with a BVM. Supplement O2 to maintain O2 sets at or above 94%. And again, just heart failure leads to pulmonary edema, the crackles, the rails. CPAP works great on pedal, or I'm sorry, pulmonary edema. So if we have those wet sounding lung sounds, we suspect it's cardiac or congestive heart failure, significant trouble breathing. Contact ALS backup because CPAP can make a world of difference for these patients. And again, if the patient's having trouble breathing, crackles, rails, and they're having chest pain, go ahead and treat chest pain as well. Aspirin, nitro, if blood pressure will allow. And we'll talk more about uh, nitro. Hypertension associated with emergency conditions. 25% of the US population has a diagnosis of chronic hypertension, high blood pressure. Hypertension is defined as a systolic blood pressure above 160 or diastolic above 94. And just during our assessment, we do need to consider what is the patient's normal blood pressure for them. So ask them, do you normally check your blood pressure? What does it normally run? Again, if patient has chronic high blood pressure and we check them out, and their blood pressure is now only 110 over 70, and he says that's way low for him, that may be an indication that, hey, we're getting starting to get a pretty, pretty low falling blood pressure compared to the norm for this patient. So again, that may be concerning to us, even though technically it's within normal limits. And generally, hypertension is not treated at the EMT level, UMC, EMS. They don't have very long transport times. They don't mess with high blood pressure either. Cardiac arrest. During cardiac arrest, we've already kind of mentioned, talked about the heart is pumping inadequately, not at all. No pulses can be felt. And this is the worst manifestation of cardiac compromise. Cardiac arrest can be caused by acute coronary syndrome. Again, there's all types of other causes that can cause a patient to go into cardiac arrest as well. If it is cardiac in nature, Coronary artery disease is going to be a primary risk factor. And as we already talked about, the treatment for cardiac arrest is CPR, AED. All right, we're going to talk about the drugs that we give for cardiac-related chest pain. First one is going to be aspirin, which is abbreviated ASA. 
aspirin is a platelet function inhibitor. That's the classification of drug, how it works. Works by preventing platelets from sticking to each other. So it's not like a clot-busting medication. It's not technically a blood thinner. Uh, but what it does is it prevents those platelets from sticking together. We look back on that picture of that heart attack where that occlusion is current. With that aspirin, we're just preventing that occlusion from getting bigger than it already is. It slows the clotting in the blood. And again, blood clots are the most common cause of a heart attack. The indication to give aspirin is cardiac chest pain, but we're not giving it as a pain reliever. It's not given to treat or get rid of the chest pain. We're giving it for the platelet function inhibitor effects. Indications, suspected MIs, unstable angina. So again, cardiac chest pain where we or chest pain where we suspect cardiac in nature, aspirin is probably going to be indicated. We do not, or aspirin is not dependent on blood pressure. So again, we do not have to get a full set of bottle signs on the patient before we give them aspirin. There is some contraindications to aspirin if they say they're allergic to it. If they say I'm allergic to aspirin, we don't give them aspirin. If they have bleeding disorders. So if they have bleeding ulcers, active bleeding ulcers, GI bleeds, any other bleeding disorders, we're not going to give them aspirin. If, and again, if they have a suspected aneurysm or we think they have an active bleed somewhere, then obviously we're not gonna give them anything that's going to reduce clotting. Aspirin is not given for pediatrics as well, just as a note. Dosage. 160 to 325 orally is the normal dose. Again, in this region, is 325 milligrams. Chewable tablets are going to work the best. That's going to ensure that it gets digested into the small intestine, gets absorbed quicker than just swallowing a full pill. If we are having them swallow the medication, though, we just need to limit the amount of water that we do give the patient. And the vast majority of the time, we do not like giving a patient anything by mouth, fluids or food or anything like that. If we're asking them to swallow medicine, though, a pill, we are going to have to give them water. But again, just limit as the amount that we're giving, just enough to swallow the pill. And aspirin's one and done. 325 milligrams, single dose, we do not repeat nitro. I'm sorry, aspirin. We do not repeat aspirin for the patient. The other main drug that we give for cardiac chest pain is nitroglycerin, abbreviation NTG. It's a potent vasodilator that increases coronary blood flow and reduces the workload of the heart by dilating coronary arteries but it doesn't pinpoint just the coronary arteries. It dilates all major blood vessels in the body. By National Registry standards, ENTs may assist a patient with nitro tablets or spray if they have a prescription, it's not out of date, et cetera. However, again, in Texas, we give it from our stock. Whether they have a prescription or not, we give them our medication if they meet the guidelines. So indications when we give nitro, cardiac-related chest pain or suspected MI. Again, pretty much the same indication as 
a, uh, I'm sorry, as aspirin. Again, the big difference with nitro is we have to ensure that their blood pressure is good. So in order for us to give nitro to a patient, their blood pressure has to be over 90 systolic. If it's already less than 90 systolic, we are not going to give them nitro. Because again, a side effect of nitro is a drop in blood pressure. The dose of nitro is 0.4 milligrams sublingually. And again, nitro either comes in a spray or a tablet, regardless of what type we're using, the dosage is still 0.4. With nitro, we can repeat nitro. We repeat nitro every three to five minutes based on protocols if no relief to a maximum of three doses. So we can only give three doses of nitro. Once we reach three doses, we cannot repeat it unless your protocol states something else. So for National Registry, three doses of nitro is the maximum. In this region, we don't have a maximum. We can keep giving nitro over five minutes as long as their blood pressure will maintain it. So with nitro, we do want to repeat it as long as the patient's having chest pain. So we go to a patient complaining of his chest pain, and they're complaining of that pain of an eight out of 10. Take vital signs, vital signs fine, no allergies, no contraindications, we're gonna go ahead and give them a nitro. Five minutes later, they said, we reassess, we asked, did that nitro help your pain any? They say, yes, okay, on that scale from one to 10, what would you rate it? And it dropped from an eight, out of 10 to a three out of 10. They're still having chest pain. Blood pressure is okay. We're going to repeat that nitro. As long as they're having pain, we want to give the nitro if we can. If their blood pressure is okay, we haven't reached the maximum dose. I don't care if it's a 10 out of 10 or a one out of 10. If they're having chest pain and nitro is indicated, we're still going to give it. One is not close enough. If they're having chest pain, we keep giving the nitro until we reach the maximum dose as long as their blood pressure can sustain it. Now, if we give one nitro and the pain completely goes away, at that point, we stop giving it because they are no longer having the chest pain. Okay, contraindications. Again, the biggest one's going to be they're allergic to it. Another contraindication is if their blood pressure is already below 90 systolic. We've already mentioned this previously. If they've taken an erectile dysfunction medication within the last 24 to 48 hours based on protocols, Levitra, Cialis, Viagra, they all have generics names as well. So if you don't know what the medication is, we might need to ask. We do got to be cautious about their heart rate, especially the slower than normal heart rate may not be the best to give nitro. It's not an absolute contraindication. Fall back to your protocols. If their blood pressure is over or their heart rate's over 100, that's typically not going to affect us from giving nitro, though. So at any time their blood pressure drops below 90 systolic, we're going to stop giving them nitro until their blood pressure hopefully comes back up. Another thing that would prevent us from giving another dose of nitro is if we have a drop in their systolic blood pressure of more than 30 millimeters of mercury after that first dose. So we check blood pressure on a patient having chest pain, their pressure is 180 over 100. We give them nitro. Five minutes later, when we're ready to repeat, we repeat that blood pressure, and now their blood pressure is 120 over 74. That was a significant drop in their blood pressure from that first nitro, more than 30. In that case, we don't want to give them another one in case we have another significant drop, and now we're putting them hypotensive. 
So again, at any times your blood pressure drops by more than 30 systolic, do not repeat the nitro. Side effects. Oftentimes they complain of a bitter taste on the tongue, whether it be the spray or as that tablet dissolves, they complain that it tastes bitter. Again, the major side effect is going to be a drop in the blood pressure. And headache is also a very common side effect for giving a patient nitro as well. Key points. We do not want to give nitro to a patient that is standing up because if we do tank their blood pressure and they pass out, we don't want them to fall and crack their head. If we're using nitro spray, it's very important that we do not shake the spray of nitro. So inhalers, we have to shake like crazy. Nitro, we can't shake. Uh, if we shake it, we're actually separating it, and now they're not getting the medication. They're just getting propellant. Spray once away from the patient to ensure full dosing. Again, we're going to prime it like we would the inhaler. Spray it once off to the side, and then we go and spray it underneath their tongue. Nitroglycerin is sensitive to light. And on the back of the truck, it's not that big of a deal, but nitro does come in dark and tinted bottles because it has a light sensitivity. If the patient has a nitro paste, transdermal patch on their arms or on their chest, that does not contraindicate EMS administering nitro to the patient. That's more of like a long-term maintenance dose. It's very low dosage of nitro. So if they have that nitro patch on, keep it on there, but we're going to act like it's not there and we're going to give the nitro like we are prescribed by uh, protocol. And again, the dose that we're giving under the tongue is way higher than what they're getting through the skin. We have to check the blood pressure before each and every dose of nitro to make sure that it's above 90 and that we haven't had that significant drop between the previous doses. And again, we can stop giving it before reaching that maximum dose if the pain completely goes away. So we may only give one, we may only give two, or we may have to give all three. So assisting medication administration of nitro, again, for us in this region, we just give it from the truck. We want the patient to sit down or lie down, fully assess vital signs, make sure that the systolic is above 90. Make sure that we have orders, either online or standing orders, to give the nitro. Check the medication. Ensure that it is prescribed to the patient. It is the proper medication, and it is not expired. If Again, if we're not, for us, we're giving it from our truck, we definitely want to ask about allergies before we give the medication as well. We're going to place the nitro under the patient's tongue. Have them put their tongue down on top of the pill. Tell them not to swallow the pill. Let it dissolve. If we're using the spray, do the same thing. Have them lift their tongue and we just spray the nitro underneath their tongue. After we give the, the drug, we're going to reassess the patient. We're going to ask the patient, did the nitro help? It is going to take some time to work. Ask them if it's helped. If it does help, we go back through OP RST. Ask them to rate the pain again. It wasn't eight out of 10. What is it now? Et cetera. They're still having the pain. Blood pressure is still adequate. We're going to go ahead and repeat it after five minutes. Pediatric considerations. 
Problems are usually due to a congenital heart condition, not acute coronary syndrome. Again, kiddo's hearts, typically, vast majority of the time, kiddo's heart is not going to be an issue. It's young, it's healthy, it's not going to be something wrong with it, unless they were born with a heart condition. Luckily for us, in America anyway, if they're born with a heart condition, they're going to be diagnosed with that at birth, so a family can tell us, hey, he's got a, a congenital heart condition. Other than that, we're probably not suspecting a heart-related issue for kids, unless it's poisoning or overdoses causing it. Cardiac arrest is usually due to airway compromise or respiratory failure. And if we do run on a patient that says they do have a congenital heart disease, and they're complaining, of, say it's a four-year-old complaining of chest pain, et cetera, I'm not going to give them any medications without contacting med control and asking for guidance on how to treat those type of patients. So again, don't be afraid to call a doctor. We ever get in the situation where we're not too sure how to handle it, pass that butt. Let that doctor make those big decisions. Geriatric. Geriatric patients represent uh, the highest number of patients you treat who experience some form of acute coronary syndrome. And remember, geriatrics may have chronic pain that can mask cardiac chest pain as well. They're going to have aches and pains, et cetera. Uh, so they may be having chest pain, but they thought it was just some of the pain that they're used to. And remember that geriatrics may minimize signs and symptoms because they're afraid if they go get checked out that they may get put in a nursing home and they may lose some of their independence. All right, our assessment-based approach for cardiovascular emergencies. Again, we start with our scene size up. Consider the dispatch information that we receive. As we approach the scene, get in the house, the residents look for clues at the scene that the patient has health problems. Things like, are they on HOMO2? Make sure that we are evaluating and we're looking at prescription medications or over-the-counter medications that the patient takes. Once we get that patient side, we start our primary assessment, form a general impression as soon as we lay eyes on the patient. If the patient's categorizing, if they're unresponsive, we need to determine quickly whether they're in cardiac arrest or not. If they are in cardiac arrest, start CPR, apply the AED. If they're responsive, we try to determine are they minor, moderate, or severe distress just by looking at them. Assess, again, if they're responsive, we go through more of our traditional ABCs primary assessment. Obtain a history. Again, we're going to use OPQRST. Again, OPQRST works great for pain, including chest pain, onset. What were you doing when that chest pain started? Provocation, palliation. Is there anything that you do that makes that pain better or worse? Quality. Can you describe that pain for me? What does that chest pain feel like? Radiation. Does the pain stay in one spot or does it move around? Severity on a scale from one to 10, 10 being the worst pain you ever felt. How bad is that pain? and time. How long ago did the chest pain start? Get your full sample. Complete your physical exam. Again, probably if they're conscious, we're not doing a complete head to toe, but areas that we definitely need to focus on, we definitely need to listen to lung sounds, and we check for pedal edema as well. Full set of vital signs during that secondary assessment, and especially for geriatrics, just anticipate that the patient may downplay their symptoms. So we may have to press them. Are you sure you're not having any chest pain? Assessment considerations treat the following 
patients as having cardiac compromise. Patient with angina lasting more than 20 minutes. Again, at that point, it's unstable angina. That is, a, is cardiac compromise. We are not going to be able to differentiate that between a heart attack, so we treat it as a heart attack. Recent onset of progressively worsening angina. Again, if it's not following the pattern, it's unstable, so we treat it like a heart attack. Nocturnal angina, again, that's not brought on by exertion or so forth. It happens when they're sleeping. We're going to treat it as a heart attack. Angina that's unrelieved by rest or three nitro tablets over 10 minutes. Again, that should be classified as unstable angina, so we treat it as a heart attack. Or chest pain that's lasting longer than five to 10 minutes after rest. And not all symptoms have to be present for ACS to be present or us to suspect it. We may treat a patient following the chest pain protocol that doesn't even really have chest pain. We just truly think that the patient could be having a heart attack. Remember, vital signs are not indicative of an MI. So going back, they don't have to have chest pain, shortness of breath, nausea, diaphoresis. Not all of those have to be present. Chest pain alone is going to be enough justification for us to treat it as ACS. Vital signs cannot uh, indicate or rule out a heart attack. And remember that certain patients do have atypical presentations. Not all heart attacks have chest pain. And pain may only be in the area of radiation. So again, this is something that I'm not saying we're going to treat everybody with neck pain with aspirin and nitro. It's just that's kind of something that we need to consider, think about when we're making our treatment decision. Some typical areas of radiation or discomfort. Again, there's just an illustration kind of showing the different areas where that pain may radiate to. So our care for ACS. Reassurances, place the patient in a position of comfort. Again, just like with difficulty breathing, it's probably going to be sitting up fairly straight up. Treat while you assess. If we do have a patient that's complaining of chest pain, before we get bottle signs, before we get too far, as soon as we realize, hey, this patient is eligible, can take aspirin, let's go ahead and give the aspirin. Supplemental oxygen is needed to keep O2 sats at or above 94%, but again, we do not want it at 100. So 94 to 99% with cardiac-related emergencies. Nitroglycerin, if allowed and indicated, again, a total of maximum doses of three doses, repeated every five minutes until we reach that maximum of three, as long as the patient's still having chest pain. Aspirin, if allowed and indicated, 325 milligrams of aspirin. And again, that's one and done. We give it once. Don't have to worry about repeating aspirin. And call ALS paramedic backup for any type of cardiac-related problem or suspected cardiac-related problem, patient needs a 12-lead EKG. Reassessment, prompt transport. Patients with ACS can deteriorate to cardiac arrest very rapidly. So again, just keep a close eye on the patient, constantly reassess the patient throughout transport. And again, closely reassess breathing, pulse rate, et cetera. So in summary for cardiac, cardiovascular disease is a significant problem. 
Presentations can range from atypical symptoms to all the way up to cardiac arrest. If we're dealing with ACS, a suspected heart attack, remember time is going to be critical. The longer they go, the more longer that heart muscle gets deprived of oxygen, the more permanent damage is going to be done to that heart. Treat cardiac arrest like we previously talked about. Remember that chain of survival. And oxygen, aspirin, and nitro are the three drugs that we generally give to the vast majority of cardiac chest pain patients. All right. Any questions over 